0: Good physics day, everyone. Today, I want to talk about a model that I've used in the classroom with superb success. It's one where the students gather around this model, and they make predictions, and they watch, and they wonder, and they're mystified by what they're seeing, and they realize that physics truly connects with their career of interest. So we start with a big bucket of water and we put a spigot into this bucket and open the spigot up and water can flow out the water is going to flow into a pipe but then that pipe branches into two other pipes and those two pipes branch into four and those four into eight and those eight into 16 at this point we stop and then we bring them back together 16 to eight eight back to four four back to two two back to one and then that one pipe can just run into a bucket on the floor What are we looking at here? Well, this is a model for the human circulatory system where the bucket serves as the heart, as a pressure gradient, which can push fluid out and into a pipe, the aorta, which then begins to branch. Branches into arteries and then arterioles and then into the capillaries with the most branches in the body and then Those begin to come back together in venules, in veins, and finally the vena cava and returning back to the heart again. So with this model, we can begin to see how fluid physics connects with the physics and physiology that students are learning in anatomy and physiology classes. They're learning in their biology classes. So we can measure the velocity of bubbles that we introduce into each branch. We can see how fast the fluid flows. And we can also measure the pressure that's in each branch. So what is it that we see? Why is it that when students make their predictions, almost all of them are wrong? Let's take a look. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. One of my big reasons for starting this podcast is my interest in Introductory Physics for the Life Sciences, IPLS. It's a community that I was introduced to quite a number of years ago, and I'm just really excited about. And it's something I want to explore when you use this podcast as a chance to talk about the many individuals who are doing such great work. And to to spread this message, to share this wonderful way of, of thinking about physics and how we can get students really invested in it. Uh, particularly at the college level, where so many students, the reason they're taking physics is because they are in uh, some kind of pre-health field. And there's so many great topics in IPLS. Uh, You can think about biomechanics. We have the forces that are um, coming from muscles. We have elasticity, stress and strain, all from muscle. But then we can also talk about bone, compression and extension of bone and muscle. And electricity, we can talk about electric potential of the heart and EKG, action potential and neurons. Uh, Ideal gas, we can bring that into the class in a little bit greater way and talk about diffusion and osmosis. Sound, uh, with technology-wise, we have ultrasound. Uh, the Biology-wise, we have the physics of the ear. Optics, technology-wise, again, we have fiber optics, laser therapy. There's a lot of great uh, topics in Suzanne Kane's introduction to physics and modern medicine text. Uh, the biology of the physics of the eye, talking about color. And then, of course, nuclear medicine is, is a whole set of chapters itself. But one of the big ones is fluids. This is a place where... In a typical physics textbook, you have one chapter and you get a mad dash through some of these topics. But fluids is a place where you can spend a long time and go into a lot of depth. And there's a lot of great relevant physics. In fluids, we start by talking about pressure and we can look at static pressures and dynamic pressures. We can look at air in the respiratory system. We can look at blood in the circulatory system. We can follow blood flow through a single artery and talk about constrictions in that artery or we can talk about blood flow on a system level looking at what this model i'm talking about here today can emphasize the aorta to capillaries back to the vena cava so just a little bit of a backstory Uh, i arrived at the university of new england in 2010 Uh, i finished up my my phd the university of connecticut Uh, university of new england was the place where i I started my career Uh, my colleague Jamie Visenka, was already hard at work with Don Meredith testing out fluid concept inventories. And that work really shaped our understanding of what was important. And I didn't didn't really get involved with with that work. It was something that I, I knew was occurring. And some of these concept inventories I would be testing out in some of my classes. What was first looked at very closely was buoyancy and the Bernoulli Principle. These were two, the two big topics that come in any fluids chapter in a textbook. So those were the ones that we were exploring in greater detail. So around 2012-2013, Jamie started looking at fluid flow through constrictions with some undergraduate students, and they would be bringing undergraduates from a class into a room and asking them some questions and interviewing them and finding out what are the ways they think about these fluid systems before and after they learned about the topics in class. So this work then led to thinking about a bigger model for the circulatory system. Uh, They began to put ideas on the table in 2014 uh, with some early presentations to uh, the American Association of Physics Teachers at their conferences. And this is when I began to get involved. I was uh, beginning to look a little bit more into what is the physics that the students in my classes needed. And that's when I was discovering that, oh, my students are really not even just biology majors, but they're... They're medical biology. They're interested in in going into fields of medicine. What is the physics that, that they would be interested in? And I saw this project Jamie was doing. I saw the undergrad students working with him, and I thought, this is something that I'd be interested in getting involved with. So as I got involved, we were finally putting a good kinesthetic model onto the table, and that was in 2015 and a paper for the physics education research conference uh, was released at that point. And uh, I'm linking to that in my show notes for today. So the main authors were Jamie Visenka, and then some of the undergraduate students we were working with Elizabeth Whitmore and Catherine Maseko. And we were consulting with one of the anatomy and physiology professors at UNE, David Grimm. But it was when I tried this model in the classroom that I was really blown away. I got completely hooked and I realized how much cardiovascular physics I had yet to learn. So in the classroom, let's go back to this model. Uh, so we have this branching from larger tubes to smaller tubes. So what is it we, that we see? We wanna talk about velocity first. So in the class, we, we show this model to the students. Uh, it's setting up in the front of the classroom and they can look at it, but we don't, we don't let the fluid flow through it yet. We want them to think about what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen to the velocity As a function of position so as the water is flowing from one to branching into two branching into four and so on back to coming back together into one again what is the velocity profile going to look like and we have them make some predictions and draw some graphs on their whiteboards and then we look at the model we open up the spigot we let the water flow through and we use a little syringe to pump some bubbles in the, the early part of the tube. And we can see these little bubbles travel through each branch. And what we find is that as branches continue branching further and further, the bubbles slow down until we get to this branching of, of a total of 16 parallel tubes. The bubbles move really slowly through there. And then as the branches begin to come back together again, the bubbles speed back up. So some students predict this correctly. Based on the physiology, what they know to be true from anatomy and physiology, they know that if they've had that class before, they know that the blood slows down in the capillaries and uh, that allows for gas and nutrient exchange because you, uh, in order to allow diffusion time to occur and osmosis time to occur, you need to have a very slow speed through there, allowing that uh, transaction to happen. And then the blood speeds back up after that. So they make those predictions based just on the physiology, but they don't know the physics reason. Meanwhile, those folks who are making incorrect predictions are thinking about fluid flow in terms of the equation of continuity, which is what we want to do there. But there's a part of the model I haven't uh, mentioned that we can also include, which is having the first pipe be a little bit larger. And then when you go into branches, those pipes can have a little bit of a smaller radius. And then in the section representing the capillaries, you can have those tubes be a little bit smaller radius still. So they're thinking, according to the equation of continuity, when you go from a wider radius to a narrower radius, the fluid speeds up. So the incorrect prediction is always that the fluid gets faster as you go into these these branches of the capillaries. And it ends up being opposite because what we really have to think about, of course, is the total cross-sectional area. So even if you have a slightly smaller radius for the capillary section, you have 16 of those tubes. So when you add up the total cross-sectional area of all of those, it is much greater than the cross-sectional area of the single pipe. And now still basing... arguments on equation of continuity we find that indeed the fluid should slow down substantially. So that's the first piece that gets these students thinking about this and they're uh, they're really excited to see these bubbles slow down and make that connection of oh this is how the physics in the body works out this is why the fluid slows down this is why the blood slows down they know it has to but they never thought about the physics of why that is happening Now for pressure. The next piece we ask them to predict is how does the pressure change versus the position? So as water is flowing into each one of these different branches, what is happening to the pressure? So based on the result above, the pressure should go up in the capillaries since the velocity is decreasing. This is a Bernoulli prediction. And they all predict this or they get it backwards. Um, if they've just learned the Bernoulli principle, maybe they, they kind of get the, the idea backwards in their mind because they're still kind of wrestling with this idea that as the velocity decreases, the pressure should actually be increasing. So they have these predictions that they're drawing on their whiteboard. So this one's a little bit tougher to, to set up in the model. You need a lot of pressure sensors. Uh, we had a lot of pressure sensors from Vernier. We connected about eight of them. And you can monitor what is the pressure in each section of pipe along the way. And everybody gets this prediction wrong. Whether they got they thought about it correctly with Bernoulli or they got it backwards. The pressure is steadily decreasing the entire time. And those who have had anatomy and physiology kind of begin to nod their heads there in recognition and say, Oh, yeah, there's this classic figure in all textbooks and only in all anatomy and physiology textbooks of the pressure at the exit of the heart and the pressure as the blood moves through the body as decreasing the entire time until the pressure basically gets down to about zero as you get back to the vena cava and then the heart this pump pumps the pressure back up to uh, this maximum value of around 100 millimeters of mercury for the blood to then travel through the body again. In order to come to this idea of the pressure decreasing the entire time, we need to think about the friction. The friction of the blood or water uh, against the walls of the pipes. The viscosity. And we have a different principle that comes into play, which is Poiseuille's Law. And yes, that's the pronunciation I'm going to go with. Poiseuille's. And I've looked up a lot of different websites of pronunciations and try to hear how do the French pronounce this word because that's where this individual is from. The one I'm settling on is Poiseuille, Poiseuille, when it's singular, when we talk about the law, Poiseuille's law, that's how we might pronounce that. So that's what I'm gonna say, Poiseuille's law. Tells us the pressure gradient the pressure drop as you are as blood or water or some kind of fluid moves across a pipe of a constant radius, the pressure drop is equal to the flow rate times eight times the viscosity times the length of the pipe divided by pi times the radius to the fourth. Now we can take all of those non-flow rate terms and set them equal to a resistance. We say that the resistance of this pipe is given by the viscosity of the fluid Higher viscosity means a greater resistance to flow. A longer length means greater resistance to flow, pretty much just like in circuits. Um, The longer length of a wire, the more resistance you have in the wire. And then the smaller the radius, and that's why this is in the denominator for the resistance, the smaller the radius, the larger the resistance. But this is an R to the fourth power. So as the radius goes down by just a small amount, the, the resistance goes significantly up. So we can talk about Poiseuille's law in terms of delta P is equal to Q times R. And this is a great analog of Ohm's law, delta V equals I times R. So instead of talking about current, we talk about flow rate of a fluid. Uh, we still have a resistance term. And now instead of talking about the change in electric potential, we talk about the change in this pressure, this pressure potential. And this is exactly how they talk about these ideas in anatomy and physiology. They bring up the idea of delta P is equal to Q times R, and they get very excited about this idea of this R to the fourth power. So what do we expect from this? Well, in a simple straight pipe of constant radius, the pressure should be linearly decreasing over a given distance. So if the pressure of a fluid is at some level, by the time you pass through the pipe, you've decreased your pressure linearly through this entire pipe. So at the base level, this is exactly what we see in the circulatory system model. We're seeing that because you're going through all these pipes, that there's a resistance put up by each and every single one of those pipes, so the pressure has to go down the entire time. So if the pipe radius decreases, then the resistance goes way up, and the pressure drop is even much larger by that 1 over r to the fourth power. Now, this means the pressure change in a circulatory system is quite complex, because you're not just going from a single pipe of one radius to a single pipe of another to a single pipe of another, that would be enough of a mathematical challenge. But now you have all these branches as well. And I tried tracking down a lot of those. Uh, I wrote i wrote up a paper that kind of explored that a little bit and uh, it was critically received by the the reviewers and I kind of saw, yeah, this really isn't a great topic, especially not for the physics teacher, uh, that, that journal that was not appropriate for. And I kind of shelved that one and Um, more of the conversation we're going to continue having today is what uh, I've just resubmitted a paper uh, based on some feedback. So this should be published hopefully in the next couple of months. So although I can't put the link in my show notes yet, most people listening to this episode in the future will see a link to that paper there. So where were we? Yeah, the pressure change in the circular story system can be quite complex. But the typical figure in the anatomy and physiology book Shows the mean blood pressure at the heart around 100 millimeters of mercury, and it steadily decreases through the body, where the biggest drops are at the capillary level, where the radius, the radii are really, really, really small. So we're talking about big resistances there, and that is going to, uh, to lead to a bigger pressure drop. And this leads to such great conversations with the students. Conversations all about Poiseuille's Law in continuity, and no Bernoulli. Bernoulli is out of the picture here. None? Really? No Bernoulli? Well, the principle still applies, but the pressure changes due to Poiseuille are much more significant. Again, the, the paper that's coming out is going to be getting into that in a, a lot more detail. Um, but basically, both the principles have to be in effect, but one of them is dominating the other. And I wanted to dig into this a little bit more because this seemed mystifying to me. Here we are spending so much time talking about Bernoulli. That That's the main dynamic pressure conversation that we look at in, in any physics textbook. And Poiseuille's law is is usually right at the end of a fluids chapter. And sometimes it shows up as an asterisk section as, well, maybe you cover this, but most likely you should just skip it because it's not very relevant. Yeah, so I wanted to look into that and... There is so much written about how Bernoulli is maybe overemphasized that it's being brought into the conversation as a full explanation for so much when actually there are so many other effects, such as looking at airplane lift and curving soccer balls, a floating ping pong ball, that uh, a Kiwanda and Magnus effect, that turbulence, the vortices, that entrainment, all of these play vital roles in this system. And that... Uh, the Bernoulli equation really isn't playing a lead role. It's it's there, but it's just a a single cog in a larger network of important mechanisms. Meanwhile, when you start talking about resistance to fluid flow, Poiseuille's law is is such a big player. Uh, some of these other effects we don't have to think about quite as much. Turbulence comes in, and we can start talking about Reynolds numbers and things like that. But but Poiseuille's law is definitely something that, that we can see play out quite a bit in the fluid physics when we talk about living systems. And this becomes such an important theme. So while I was on sabbatical in 2017, I went to, the, to Portland State University and I was working with Ralph Wiedenhorn on a, on a grant that he had called the Multimedia Modules for Physics Instruction in a Flip Classroom Course for Pre-Health and Life Science Majors. I'm going to provide a link so that you can go check out some of those interviews that that we have available from that grant. And I wasn't involved with with most of those, but they were interviewing a lot of health professionals and talking to them about the physics they use in their careers. And so I had a chance while I was there to interview a cardiologist. And I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Lindner, uh, a practicing cardiologist and professor of medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. And these conversations really helped shape my thinking around fluid flow in, in the human body and conversations that I've, I've had with biology teachers, uh, particularly at the University of New England. And I'll give a little shout out here talking with David Grimm, David Sammeyer, Jeff Parmley, Kosh Dutta, Marlena Copra fox Wendy Roberts. Uh, these were folks I had many conversations with. I sat in on their classes. I stopped by their offices, and such great conversations. And I learned so much physics of the human body—not just fluids, but so many other topics as well. And that's—and that's what we got to do. If we're going to bring those topics into our classroom, we can't just hope that we as physicists can pull out some examples out of a physics textbooks uh, because those models are very incomplete and and we don't have the training. We just don't have the training to really grasp e- these ideas and we need to have conversations. And this is why I'll, I'll probably keep saying on episode after episode, teaching physics for the life sciences may not be for everyone because it takes extra time to look into these ideas and to learn a lot more. And if you're interested in that, you're passionate about that, yes, awesome, do that. Teach those courses. But if you're not, if you have other things you're interested and passionate about, do those things. You should be doing what really fuels you and drives you. But what I hope to do as I'm sharing these ideas is excite people so that you, you might wanna learn more of these topics yourself and, and bring them to your students because the students get excited about them. They, they see this relevance. I'll get off my soapbox for the moment here. Uh, so I was talking with Dr. Lindner, uh, the cardiologist at, out in Oregon, and uh, I'll definitely provide a link to that, that interview there. There's, there's so much there that I, I, can't, I can't possibly share in this single episode. You can watch his YouTube videos. You can get some, some great ideas there. But the main topics we discussed were measuring pressure in the heart, directly in the chambers of the heart or in the blood vessels. And talk about how we can use ultrasound to figure out velocities and pressure gradients. So he spent most of his time talking about Poiseuille's Law. And particularly thinking about the coronary arteries and blockages in those arteries. So a blockage. If, if the body needs to maintain about 5 liters per minute of blood flow, which is on average what it needs to maintain at a resting state, it can go up to upwards of 20, maybe even 30 liters per minute in, in athletes. Um, But typically the body needs to maintain about 5 liters per minute. And take Pauwies' law, Delta P is equal to Q times R. If there is a blockage in an artery, then the resistance goes up. If the resistance goes up, but the heart is maintaining a constant pressure, as R goes up, then Q has to go down, flow rate goes down. And the body can't have the flow rate go down. It needs to deliver a certain amount of blood, certain amount of liters of blood per minute. So how do you get that flow rate back up? So one way is you could increase delta P. You can have an increase in the blood pressure. Now, there is another mechanism called autoregulation that the body can use. The body can dilate blood vessels downstream from the blockage. Basically, blood vessels can expand. The radius can go up and therefore that's going to reduce R downstream. And really we're talking about what is the total resistance of the entire system. So if R goes up at one place in the system, if you can have the resistance resistance go down at another place in the system, then you can keep the flow rate constant. And this can actually occur up to about 85% blockage that the body just keeps compensating and you don't see any problem, which is great. Thank you body for doing that. But this is why heart attacks and strokes and things like that can happen all of a sudden because you have this immense blockage and all of a sudden the body just kind of goes, all right, I give up, I can't take it anymore. I can't account for this blockage anymore by opening up vessels downstream. So in the world of medicine, the cardiologist wants to be able to determine that there's a blockage before something bad happens. So the stress test is able to do this. Basically, once blood flow is now constantly at a higher rate, instead of 5 liters per minute, up at 20 liters per minute, the evidence of this blockage appears a little bit earlier. Uh, So in the measurements that are done, and I won't get into the details of those right here, but in those measurements that are done, uh, basically a blockage shows itself at a smaller percentage, maybe at only 50 or 60% blockage. You can begin to detect that through this stress test. Also with Poiseuille's law, we don't think about just radius, but we think about viscosity. So blood flow abnormalities can increase viscosity. You can have uh, a toughening of the red blood cells themselves. That can overall increase viscosity. And this can cause problems because that also increases the resistance in these pipes. So now we might start thinking about reducing the viscosity of blood. If you reduce the viscosity, you can bring the resistance back down again. And now the flow rate Q can be maintained. Dr. Lindner did not ignore Bernoulli though. Bernoulli does have its place in this field. And it's often where the blood flow is highest. Uh, The blood flow is highest right out of the heart. So they can measure pressure gradients between two chambers of the heart. You can just measure the velocity of the blood flow with Doppler ultrasound. And there was a a fun little expression that that he gave that cardiologists think about. Delta P is equal to four V squared. And you can derive this from the regular Bernoulli equation and converting it from Pascal's into millimeters of mercury. But anyway, it's, it's this cool little expression where you can just think of the change in pressure is proportional to the velocity squared. So if you can measure the velocity as blood goes from one chamber to another in the heart, you can determine what the pressure gradient is. Now, where is that going to be important? It's very important with valve stenosis. So if one of the valves in the heart experiences thickening or stiffening, then you're going to find that that valve can't open as much. And now as blood goes from one section, one chamber of the heart to another, there's a narrow opening. And now this is where Bernoulli's principle comes in, that as soon as you have blood go through the narrow opening, it goes through much faster. So the velocity increases through that that stiffened section. And as that velocity goes up, you have a big pressure drop at that point so by being able to measure that pressure gradient then you can begin to see some indicators of a blockage or a stenosis so there's some great physics so much that that we're able to learn about from our practitioners of medicine and from our anatomy and physiology colleagues back to the circulatory system model so we can also take a look at pathophysiology we could look at a blockage or a stiffening it's as simple as taking this model of tubes and on one of those tubes somewhere, you just put a clamp around it. Just put a clamp somewhere in the middle of the system. Uh, this is gonna mimic a stenosis. It's gonna mimic a blockage. So now the resistance goes up for the entire system. The pressure is the same because my bucket of water is still filled to the same height, but the flow rate is gonna go down. Flow rate, if we rearrange Poiseuille's law, flow rate is equal to delta P over R. So delta p stays the same, but the resistance goes up. So now the flow rate goes down. If you measure the flow rate of the normal system and then you measure the flow rate of the water exiting that last pipe again, when you put in a blockage, you find the whole flow rate has gone down. So then we have to start thinking about solutions to maintain flow rate. Well, this idea of auto-regulation, opening pipes downstream, we can't really do that with this model. One thing we can do, though, is we can mimic the change in blood pressure, Uh, We could lift the bucket higher or we could fill the bucket with more water. That's going to create a higher, uh, a greater hydrostatic pressure difference. And that's going to mimic uh, the increase in blood pressure uh, due to the heart working harder. Another thing we could try, it might, might take a little bit more work, but it's the idea of blood thinning. So we can actually use a mixture of water and glycerol and so sort of a a sugary fluid so that can increase the viscosity and then we could look at the flow rate when we have a certain percentage let's say 50 50 of water and glycerol and then maybe we add more water to the bucket and we dilute it a little bit more we might be able to see that the flow rate uh, begins to go back up as you are are decreasing the viscosity of the fluid this really is a special model to use in the classroom out of any physics activity throughout the year, it really gets students talking about physics and its application to the body. It leads to so many students hanging around after the class is done, and they come and gather around the model, and they're asking question after question. They want to know more. They want to see, they're, they're so excited to see this connection between things they've studied in another class and what we're doing here in physics. And that and that is something that I just keep coming back to making those connections really gets the students excited and they start to see how now physics is not just this isolated separate thing, but that, wow, this is really relevant for what they're interested in. And I think that's so important. If you haven't had a chance to listen to my interview with Nancy Donaldson at Rutgers University and hear about her physics of medicine major there, that's definitely an episode you should check out if you were really interested in this conversation here. And I hope you think about building a model like this one so in the show notes i'm providing uh, the resources to help you set up that model there's a description of how you can use it in the classroom and there's a parts list of all the different parts that you can buy and this model is going to come in at about a hundred dollars or less to buy if you've got pressure sensors already, that's, that's great. Uh, you may need to pick up a couple pressure sensors if you really want to be able to, to do the pressure measurement here. And I think there's a lot of value in being able to see uh, the pressure change. You don't necessarily need eight pressure sensors like we used. You could get away with maybe three of them somewhere to measure the pressure at the beginning, the middle and, and at the end. And that alone can show that the pressure is steadily dropping the entire time. And that the Bernoulli principle is not what is predicting what the pressure is going to be here. That's that's the big takeaway there. But the model doesn't take long to build. It's not too expensive. You get the parts. Uh, you can build it in about two to three hours. Maybe you can even have it a, as a project that some students could put it together. And yeah, it's just such a powerful, simple model. Yeah, it doesn't get to all of the complex physics, but certainly we don't want our models to get to all of the complex physics, but we wanna take a big complex system and make a simple little model that can generate lots of questions and then you can dig deeper and deeper into the topic. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you wanna learn more about the circulatory system model and the arguments about when to use Poiseuille's law and when to use Bernoulli's principle, Head on over to physicsalive.com forward slash fluids to check out the show notes, or you can find the show on the episodes page. I'll put up some information about how to build and use this model, a preprint of the article I wrote or the published article when that's available and provide a link to the YouTube videos of my interview with Dr. Lindner. You can also find many of these resources on the living physics portal. This is the place to search through a growing collection of great teaching materials related to IPLS from the amazing folks in this community. It isn't easy to learn new physics, but it can be fascinating and you don't need to build your curriculum from scratch. So much great work has already been done. I do hope you check out the show notes at physicsalive.com forward slash fluids. While you are there, you can subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter so that you can stay up to date about current episodes, future projects, and ways to share what new endeavors you are trying out or new life science topics you are exploring. If you are on social media, you can check out Physics Alive on Twitter and Instagram and go to facebook.com forward slash physics alive page. If you like this show, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a five-star rating and review of the show. These reviews help other educators like you find the show and get connected to this community. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to dive a little deeper into Poiseuille's Law. Your homework assignment, go talk to a colleague who teaches biology or anatomy. Share with them what you learned in this episode and put your heads together to think about how you might introduce the circulatory system in your class. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, keep working on your pronunciation of Poisewee, poisewee and be well.